Many of you will know about, about the, the, the Wadham's um, approach to access and the policies that it's developed um, over many years to try and uh, make it a place which is open to people of talent from uh, all backgrounds. Uh, and really this, this, this work has sprung from our fundamental belief that, uh, that academic excellence, academic potential are not accidents of birth, still less a function of, we- of wealth. We, we believe that uh, opening ourselves up, opening up our great universities to young people from the broadest range of backgrounds is not about lowering standards to let less able people in. On the contrary, it's about finding the very best talent uh, wherever it is to be found. And it's about driving up uh, scholarship. It's about driving up academic standards. And that's our motivation, to broaden access at the same time uh, as driving up the standards of scholarship in our college. And we see that happening around every day, uh, around us every day in Wadham, the wonderful diversity of our student body and their extraordinary academic uh, achievements, which we believe are testament uh, to the success um, of this uh, policy. I'm um, delighted that we're joined by such distinguished um, guests this afternoon. Uh, Joe Johnson, uh, after a distinguished career as a journalist, uh, notably at the Financial Times, came into politics and has been serving as Minister for uh, Universities and Science since uh, 2015 and is presently steering the Higher Education Bill um, through Parliament. And I have to say, uh, for the first time ever, I witnessed a minister standing at the bar of the House of Lords hour after hour listening to uh, contributions from their lordships, all, all of which I'm sure were of scintillating brilliance, and I'm sure he enjoyed doing that. But it was very much noted in the House that he, he did us that courtesy of standing there for such a long time, listening to so many uh, speeches, and deeply appreciated. And, and, and I'm very glad that you're here tonight, Joe. Thank you for coming. Uh, L- Louise Richardson needs little um, introduction. Professor Richardson, after a a distinguished career at Harvard and some years as principal of St Andrews, came to Oxford as our first woman vice-chancellor, first Irish vice-chancellor last year. And St Andrews' loss was certainly our gain. We were absolutely delighted uh, that she uh, arrived in Oxford uh, and and we're delighted that she's here uh, this evening. Warren East... um, has had a distinguished career in business, chief executive of ARM, the British computer manufacturer, uh, which he led, uh, computer chip manufacturer, which he led to world prominence during his period there. Uh, And since 2015, the chief executive of one of uh, the United Kingdom's great companies, uh, Rolls-Royce. His most distinguished role, of course, is as chair of Wadham's Development Council, um, and uh, we're deeply grateful to him for the work that he does uh, leading our development work in that uh, capacity. Uh, Melvin Bragg, Lord Bragg, is going to chair um, the discussion a a little later. Again, he needs no introduction, a a titan in the arts world uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, but more importantly, perhaps, an alumnus of Wadham uh, and an honorary fellow uh, of our college. Um, Again, thank you very much for being here um, this evening, Melvin. So I'm now going to hand over uh, to the minister, uh, and each of our um, guests is going to make a short address to you before we move to a panel discussion, and we very much hope that you um, will all uh, join in with that discussion. The, the, The addresses are going to be podcast, but the panel discussion isn't, which means you can say anything you like um, and it won't be recorded. So with that, um, can I introduce the Minister, Joe Johnson.
Great. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much, uh, Ken, for that kind introduction, Lord MacDonald, for that kind introduction and for um, asking uh, me to take part in uh, this important event. Um, for the government supporting young people to realize their potential and to go as far as their talents will take them um, is an extremely important part of uh, our program and particularly important to the new Prime Minister, uh, Theresa May. Ensuring people from all backgrounds are able to go to university uh, is an essential part of that. Higher education, as you know, can benefit people tremendously throughout their lives, and the statistics um, that attest to this are familiar to you all. Your lifetime earnings, if you're a woman, are likely to be £250,000 higher, £170,000 higher if you're a man than if you go to university, than if you don't go to university with um, comparable um, school qualifications. The government um, in 2015 committed to two big and ambitious goals to increase participation. Um, we committed first to double the proportion of people from disadvantaged backgrounds going to university from the levels we inherited in 2009-10. So in 2009-10, about 13.6% of people from the bottom quintile going to university. We've committed to an ambitious goal of doubling that to 27.2% by 2020. At the current run rate, um, we're not quite on track uh, to meet that goal, but if universities uh, fulfill the commitments they've made to Les Ebden, the Director of Fair Access, we would hit those goals, and that's why, as government, we're continuing to urge universities to, to do their bit. The other big goal that we commit, committed to was to increase uh, the number of students from BME backgrounds, some groups within which that broad category are very significantly underrepresented at university, um, by 20% by 2020 again. Now, these goals build on what has already been very substantial progress um, by the sector in widening participation over the last few years. And um, according to uh, the latest data, you are now 40% more likely to go to university if you're from that bottom quintile than you were uh, eight years ago. And eight years ago is a relevant time period because that's before um, the very significant changes in uh, funding, tuition funding, that were introduced um, during the last uh, parliament by the coalition government. But there is a very significant way still to go. 18-year-olds from the most advantaged backgrounds, that's the top 20%, are around six times more likely than the bottom 20% to attend a selective institution. Now, the reasons um, for these very big gaps um, are complicated, but we are in agreement um, with the likes of Oxford and Cambridge and many others in the Russell Group that prior attainment, prior educational attainment, is the key driver of progression to higher education. Uh, research conducted by the IFS on behalf of BIS shows that for students who took their GCSEs in 2008, pupils from the most advantaged backgrounds were a third more likely to progress to higher education than pupils from the most disadvantaged backgrounds. But once background characteristics and prior attainment are taken into account, the gap reduces all the way to 4%. And that's why we need to address with the university sector and with the school sector this challenge of prior attainment and why we're encouraging universities to work with schools through outreach programs and other kinds of engagement to raise aspiration and attainment. 
And in 2017, 2018, this new batch of access agreements will see the sector spending about £171 million pounds, um, on pre-entry activities to raise attainment and aspirations in these groups through things such as uh, homework clubs and summer schools. And you will have, I, I assume, all seen that the government has recently consulted on proposals for universities to have a much more active role in driving attainment through means um, of, uh, for example, sponsoring or establishing schools themselves directly. Now, uh, Lord Macdonald was kind enough to mention the Higher Education and Research Bill, which has been uh, occupying me for the best part of um, two years. And this bill um, will build significantly on all of these uh, streams of work that have been um, ongoing over the last few years. It will introduce a number of important measures that will help us improve participation in higher education, and by doing so, uh, increase social mobility. And with your leave, I'll just quickly run through um, a few of the key things it does, because these have received um, remarkably little attention, I would uh, say, in the uh, scrutiny that uh, the bill has thus far enjoyed um, in, the, in the House of Lords. So the first thing that the bill does with respect to social mobility and widening participation is that it really mainstreams um, the regulatory duty to have regard to equality of opportunity in everything that the new regulatory body, the Office for Students, will do. Now, HEFKE, is a, the current regulator in the system, is a brilliant body, but it doesn't have a duty to have regard to equality of opportunity um, in the way that the new um, Office for Students will. The bill will also um, require all higher education providers on the register to publish application to offer data. So that's student applications, offer rates, acceptance and completion rates by gender, ethnic background, and socioeconomic background. Now, some universities may already, and I'm sure Oxford is already, putting a lot of this data up on its website, but that is by no means systematic or uniform across uh, the higher education system, and it will be um, subject to the passage of the bill uh, through the Houses of Parliament um, after, after the Office for Students comes into existence. The bill also very significantly expands the role of the Director for Fair Access. Um, I mentioned Les Ebden earlier. He becomes, or he or she, whoever it is in the new body, uh, sees their powers extended to participation. At the moment, the Director for Fair Access's powers stop at the point of entry in law. When the bill receives royal assent, God willing, um, the new director will have a duty um, to look to uh, social mobility all the way through the system, through to participation. So that will mean um, that they no longer stop at the point of entry and they will be responsible for ensuring that universities are doing all they can to support students throughout their courses and then on um, into the world of work or further study or whatever useful thing they want to do with their lives. So whether it's about access to university, helping to tackle dropout rates and support disadvantaged students into employment, the new Director for Fair Access and Participation will be looking to institutions to do as much as they can. Through the new legislation, 
um, we will also be making it easier for high-quality new providers to enter the sector. And one of the least commented upon features of these newer providers um, is the fact that they are far more likely um, to be drawing students into higher education from backgrounds that have hitherto been relatively poorly served by the existing sector. And that is one of the reasons why we want to encourage newer providers to tap groups who have been hard to reach for the existing providers. And frankly, this has been the story of the expansion of higher education throughout its history. Um, so this should be no surprise that the newer entrants today, by meeting learner demand in new and interesting ways, are reaching out and broadening access to higher education. The teaching excellence framework will also um, support social mobility and widening participation. It will give students more information about the teaching that they will receive before they apply to university, and it will then reward providers that up their game and deliver high-quality teaching for all. The TEF will be giving students clear information about where teaching is best and where they are likely to obtain the best outcomes from their time in higher education. And this will be, we believe, of particular value to students from disadvantaged backgrounds who may have less access to other sources of information. The TEF assessment process will explicitly look at the extent to which the provider achieves positive outcomes for disadvantaged students. We will be benchmarking the highly skilled employment and further study metric by social disadvantage and disability to ensure providers who take large numbers of students from disadvantaged backgrounds are assessed fairly. And to ensure participation and choice are open to everyone, the bill allows there to be an alternative student finance product for the first time. This will be open to everyone and will not result in any advantage or disadvantage relative to a student loan, but will avoid the payment of interest, which is inconsistent with the principles of Islamic finance, and this is intended to support the participation in higher education of Muslim students. Beyond the bill, I'd like to pause on the question of advice. The right advice at the right time can allow young people to make decisions, take opportunities, and gain relevant experience, meaning a greater chance of moving into successful careers. And the government is investing £90 million over this parliament to ensure that every young person has equal access to this life-changing advice and inspiration that they need to fulfill their potential. There is still, of course, much more to do. The lower attendance of young people from disadvantaged backgrounds compared to their more affluent peers inevitably impacts their job prospects. And that's why I'm pleased that Wadham College intends to be so ambitious in its approach and lead the way for fair access, but also to focus on student retention and graduate outcomes. So I'm extremely uh, supportive of the Wadham initiative, just as I'm supportive of um, initiatives that uh, Alan Rusbridger is taking um, at LMH, um, and I'm very keen to be supportive of other institutions um, that also undertake pioneering and groundbreaking initiatives to do more to overcome the prior attainment barriers I mentioned earlier on. But thank you very much, and um, looking forward to hearing others' contributions. Good evening. I'm, I, too, am delighted to be here. Um, 
The role of universities as an engine of social mobility really no longer needs to be argued. The evidence is simply overwhelming. Whether measured in lifetime earnings or in the more intangible qualities of life, university education sets the trajectory for a lifetime. Now, particular studies differ on the details and across countries. In the US, for example, the Brookings Institution calculates that university graduates earn 65% more than those with a high school diploma. Uh, The minister just quoted a a uh, 2013 biz study which estimated that the private benefit to a woman of gaining a degree in this country is £252,000 over a lifetime, and the social benefit to the government is 318000 And I have to say, I was absolutely delighted to see that the uh, minister and I were using the same figures because I was delighted to find something on which we could agree. Um, Because I have to say, uh, this isn't the time to argue it, but uh, disagree with him entirely on the merits of the higher education bill and indeed on the wisdom of requiring universities to sponsor schools. But that's an argument for another day. Um, OECD figures are... Somewhat different again, but again, all are agreed on the enormous public and private benefits uh, of a university education. And this pattern, I think, is only likely to be more pronounced in the future. There's a recent fascinating study by Georgetown University, an analysis of job creation after the financial crisis in the U.S., and it revealed that 98% of the new jobs created went to those with a university degree. So in other words, 8.4 million of the new jobs in the U.S. created in the wake of the financial crisis, 8.4 million went to people with a university degree, and 80,000 went to people without a university degree. It seems to me that that statistic alone could probably explain the election of Donald Trump. Now, universities can only transform the lives of those who attend them. The real inequality in our society occur long before students get to university. The Sutton Trust has demonstrated that by age five, there is already a 19-month gap in school readiness between the richest and poorest children. The gap widens in secondary school. According to the DfE, 38% of disadvantaged pupils receive five good GCSEs, compared to 65% of their peers. Pupils from the most advantaged groups in the UK, again, the minister cited this figure 2.4 times more likely to attend university, 6.3 times more likely to attend a Russell group than their disadvantaged peers. The harsh reality in this country is that these students in the top eight schools in this country have as many of the GCSEs required to attend Oxford as students at the bottom 1,500 schools. Now, this is the real indictment of our society. This is the fundamental problem, and universities alone cannot solve it. Uh, But it does not absolve us of responsibility to do everything we can to ensure that we can attract those students from deprived backgrounds with the potential to thrive at university, and this is precisely what Wadham is doing. It's perhaps also worth remembering, too, that even with a university degree, inequities remain. At the Institute for Fiscal Studies, have recently demonstrated that parental income and background are significant predictors of graduate outcomes, regardless of degree, So universities have a critical role in ensuring social mobility, but we are far from alone. Oxford's commitment to widening access, which of course is inextricably linked to social mobility, is not driven by regulator-imposed targets, but by a belief in what we are about. 
Our future success will correlate directly to our success in attracting the smartest, most creative students, the students with the greatest potential to contribute to the world beyond the university. We already attract extraordinarily talented students, but the quality of their experience will be immeasurably enhanced when they interact on a daily basis with people unlike themselves, peers who bring entirely different perspectives to their shared experience. Moreover, in an increasingly globalized world, notwithstanding recent setbacks, we believe we have an obligation to educate our students to engage successfully in the world beyond the university and indeed the country. Now, when I arrived at Oxford a year ago, I was simply amazed at the depth of our commitment and the scale of the resources devoted to widening access to the university. We spend six million a year on outreach activities and about uh, another 12 on bursaries. It's the most most generous bursary scheme in the country. We have large-scale schemes and small-scale schemes. We work with teachers, parents, and pupils across the country, and yet none of us are satisfied with what we've achieved. Just to give you an indication of the scale of our activities, last year alone, our teams worked with 2,756 state schools whose pupils rarely apply to Oxford. We worked with over 3,400 schools in all. So we do indeed work with schools without a government requirement to do so. Uh, In the Southwest, over 22,000 students, parents, and teachers from schools with low participation rates attended our events. In the Northeast, the figure was 33,000. This is last year alone. So we are getting the word out. The most intensive large-scale activity in which we engage is our unique summer school. Uh, This is a program in which uh, Wadham, amongst other colleges, participates for year 12 state school pupils. Preference is given to high-performing students from disadvantaged socioeconomic backgrounds who live in areas with low participation rates to higher education. 5,450 students have participated in the program since it started in 2010. 40% of participants who applied to Oxford in those years were admitted. So almost a quarter of students participating in this program went on to study at the university. Next summer, we plan to engage in a pilot program with the Sutton Trust to see whether through their networks we can identify more students from the most deprived backgrounds and most underrepresented minorities to participate in summer programs. Now, I believe the unique program is the single factor with the biggest impact on our private public school ratio. This year, the number of privately educated students at Oxford was at its lowest level ever at 40%. But I would like to take a moment to express my frustration at the crudeness of this measurement. Our colleagues in the press like a simple story, but the reality, as we all know, is altogether more complicated. The real inequality is between different state schools based on their catchment area. Moreover, I don't think parents should be penalized for sending their children to private schools. Not all who do so are fabulously wealthy. Children with parents in the services, going through divorce or on scholarships or for a host of other reasons, attend private schools. In fact, almost 10% of British undergraduates attending Oxford University come from families eligible for free school meals. That means their family have an income around £16,000. That's 10% of our British undergraduates. 30% of those students were privately educated. So addressing societal inequities is a complicated issue, and oversimplified matrices only make it much more difficult to achieve. 
Now, while being a collegiate university makes coordinated activity difficult, it does have a number of advantages. The small size of colleges provide a welcoming home for undergraduates of all backgrounds and makes it hard for them to fall through the cracks once they've arrived. In addition, colleges allow for small-scale experiments from which others can learn, such as Wadden's links with the remarkable charity Into University or LMH's Foundation Year or UNIV's uh, initiative in expanding the entering class and preserving the new places for qualified students from deprived backgrounds. So notwithstanding all the financial and human resources we have deployed, we know we have a long way to go, but nobody should doubt our commitment. Universities cannot alone remove all the barriers to social mobility, but we are certainly committed to doing what we can. Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, so I'm going to give uh, a little bit of a sort of commercial and business view, um, wearing my hat from business, uh, which is obviously a consumer of, uh, of what comes out of universities. And then I'll also put my Wadham hat on and, uh, and make a few comments about the, uh, the Wadham program in particular. But I'll, I'll start with a sort of why am I here um, personally doing it? And this is a confession. So at school, as I was going through school, uh, certainly uh, secondary school, um, I never thought about not going to Oxbridge. Uh, and at the time, I was at a direct grant school. So how incredibly naive, uh, how incredibly privileged uh, that was. And um, of course, it was jolly lucky uh, for me that it, that it worked out. And it was only with the hindsight of, of, of years later um, that I realized just how privileged I, I was. And, and that's why I'm here supporting uh, this initiative. Now, on a day like today, uh, in a place like this, I, I obviously have to say Brexit or no Brexit, um, the disproportionate um, presence of UK universities amongst the top-ranked universities in the world is a strength that this country has. And, um, you know, it is an excellent example of the UK punching above its weight in the world at large. And we're very lucky to have things like the Oxbridge education system uh, here in the UK. So what a travesty it would be indeed uh, for our society if we don't use it. And actually, coming then, putting the business angle on it, it's common sense. If you've got a really good asset and you're only using it a tiny little bit, then you're not using it very effectively. And if you look at the generation of Oxford students when... I went to Wadham, uh, well, the applicants there were a, a very, very small minority of, uh, of, of the population at the time. And so deploying uh, an asset um, like an Oxbridge education against such a small proportion, um, it clearly makes no sense. And that's why we should be, uh, we should be widening it. Um, now, a few sort of reflections on the broader reflections on this agenda. Um, I, I agree a lot with uh, what the Vice-Chancellor said. It's very important that we're measured in our approach because um, forcing a high-powered academic education, university education on, on everybody um, so that you need a degree to do absolutely any job um, 
it's muddied the water, it's shattered the confidence of, of lots of the, the young people that have come out of university and then found it impossible to, to get jobs. And it's left employers floundering around when they're hiring graduates because it's very difficult to sort of distinguish between, uh, between some of the degrees. And in reality, if you look at real companies uh, such as my own, then we need a range of skills. Uh, and um, you know, we have an extensive apprenticeship program. We take school leavers. Uh, and you know, even at the top of our company, a significant number of our senior staff started out their careers as apprentices. So success shouldn't just be about a numbers game where we maximize the number of uh, people uh, and even maximize the number of so-called underprivileged uh, students at university. It's about providing the right education to get the best out of, out of all of our people. And on that line, it, it's important, too, that uh, things like the Wadham program doesn't dis discriminate against the privileged uh, and the advantaged students just seeking to be uh, altruistic. And, um, you know, as Vice-Chancellor mentioned, you know, it's, it's important to have a range, to recognise the fact that a breadth of perspective um, can, and a breadth of experience can be a really valuable asset in the classroom, just as in the business world um, it is later in life. And um, the access agenda that's, that's pursued here by, by Wadham and, and by the other colleges... Um, it's about breaking down some of the cultural barriers which you know, we shouldn't pretend don't exist. Even within, you know, within the same nationality, uh, you know, there are cultural barriers around background. And if you want to be very crude about it, it's around, it's around wealth and it's around you know, schools, in, uh, as we heard, in different catchment areas. And it's two-way. It's, it's as much about um, educating the privileged ones about the rest of society is, is about educating the less privileged ones. Now, when we come on later in life to do business, um, you learn that actually business happens between people, and people come from all sorts of different backgrounds and different cultures, and it's really important to respect other people who think differently uh, and, have, uh, and have different points of view. So when you want to assemble teams in business... You know, the best teams are mixed teams of people who think about problems in different ways. In the world of, uh, of business, there's, there's no right answer often to many of the problems. And the problems, by definition, are really hard problems. And that if you have the same people coming from the same background, they're all going to come up with similar answers. And if, you've got, if you are operating in the same way as your competitors... Uh, and you all come up with the same sort of answers, then um, you've only got price to compete on, and that just drives down margins, and that's no good for anybody. So diversity uh, and diversity of thought is a good thing for business. And uh, it's interesting, and possibly a coincidence, that I came here this afternoon from a meeting of my executive leadership team. And then item one on the agenda today, we spent three quarters of an hour talking about how we can improve our diversity and inclusiveness around our business. Because we're an example of a British company dominated by 50-something white male uh, Brits. And we're operating on a global, um, in a global marketplace 
uh, and we're missing out. And so we've been working on a series of actions that we can take to uh, dramatically change that, hopefully, over the next three years or so. I thought it was a great coincidence that I was then coming here uh, to talk about this. Um, so since leaving Wadham, I, I've, I've uh, had a career in, in engineering, and um, I can tell you that the, the Oxford education does equip people very well for doing business on a global stage, and, uh, and we ought to use it more. Now, I'll just close with a few observations on, um, on the, the, the Wadham activity. Uh, first of all, uh, great to see common sense business principles, focus and leverage. Um, so rather than boil the ocean um, and, and dissipate all the resource, um, the, the Wadham team have, have focused their activities and um, you know, concentrating on, on a few regions has enabled them to, to get to a very large number of students, over 6,000 students in nearly 200 schools, and at the same time build really strong relationships with those schools um, for the future. And that sounds to me like a very sensible use of, of resource. So great, at some stage we need to scale it up, but that's what the university's about and different colleges. Um, good on Wadham on, on that focus. And also on the focus point, um, you know, when within the schools the college has done a good job um, on focusing on the students or potential students uh, with whom they can make the most difference, so 50% with no parental history of, uh, of university. And then a bit of leverage, how does Wadham do it? Well, um, you, you heard, with, with partnerships. So with a relatively limited resource within the college, uh, they can use partnerships and, uh, and do more with less and reach a, a larger number of potential students. Uh, and the program is uh, yielding results, so that's very good to see a significant change in uh, the students' attitude towards university. This information comes out of the impact report, by the way, that, uh, that's in your, in your, your packs. Um, and in your packs, you'll, you can look and you can read about things like uh, the scheme that Wadham is doing in, in Luton and uh, some of the, the, the great results uh, that are coming out there where it seems over 91% of the students agreed they were more likely to apply to university uh, after uh, getting involved in the, in the Wadham programme. And then programmes like the summer schools uh, that we heard about, that Wadham does in classics, politics and engineering, they're making a really big impact. And it's very encouraging for me as a Wadham engineer uh, to see the engineering school in particular um, uh, really making an impact there. So this year out of uh, just under 50 um, summer school, school pupils, uh, it seems nearly half, 23, applied to Oxford, and, uh, and I'm told about nine have been, have been offered places. So that's very good. So well done, uh, the Wadham team. Uh, I think they're also making a good job on making it sustainable. So holding events like this, and one that I and I know some people in the room attended earlier in the year, um, that enables, or that, uh, that making it sustainable, concentrating on dragging uh, people like us into uh, to support this, uh, the, the alums to support it, is, is a good thing. So I'll stop there, and uh, we can get on with the panel discussion. Thanks very much. Thanks very much to our three speakers. What
I'm going to do now is ask a brief question to each of them, and it'll be a brief question. The answer can be as long as they want, and if you want to take up each other's points that have been made or in the question and answer, please do that for the beginning part of this. Uh, of this. Now I'll throw it open to you, uh, and we should have a good, decent time to ask questions. If you could uh, stand up, if you don't mind, when you throw the voice forward, as it were, and speak up, then we should get along famously. Okay. Um, starting with you, Joe, what... What do you think that the efforts you're putting into the universities, into the scholarship side, let's call it that, just to be very simple, on, on higher education, is going to answer the problems we face as a country? Or do you think it's only part of it? I mean, I'm thinking of the massive skills shortage and so on and so forth. Well, it's not going to be the whole answer, but I think it will make a difference. Um, you know, one of the motivations for our reforms uh, with respect to uh, the Teaching Excellence Framework, for example, is to address the labour market mismatch that's uh, resulting from our higher education system. And I think one of the striking uh, phenomena at the moment is that we see, uh, just at the same time as we see employers suffering skills shortages in key areas, such as, for example... Um, in engineering, where we face a shortfall of about a, a million or so engineers over the next decade, um, we see very significant uh, numbers of uh, students piling up um, and not finding graduate jobs. So there is a mismatch that's resulting uh, from the operation of our higher education system, and this is a real worry uh, for government because we want our businesses to get the pipeline of graduates that they need to keep on fueling you know, growth in our economy. And we want good outcomes for students from what's a very big investment of their human capital and also taxpayer resources underwriting the loans that they're taking out to go to university or higher education institution. So addressing this labour market mismatch is a big motivation for what we're doing. It means better information for students about where outcomes are good uh, from higher education and making sure that they really understand the implications of their choices quite early on in their educational pathway. At school, what courses they choose to do at university, if they choose to go to university at all, and so on. So making sure that information about where outcomes are good um, is for us an important part of tackling this uh, labour market mismatch that's so important to raising productivity in our economy. Would you like to comment? Um, well, I would just like to remind us that the purpose of university is not just to provide a workforce for our businesses. Um, um, uh, going back to Mill, who said the purpose of a university is not just to produce lawyers and shoemakers, but thinking people. I mean, the reality is our students today will be occupying jobs that we can't even imagine now in their lifetime. And we need to ensure that they're educated to be agile, to be intellectually flexible, uh, to be able to think critically and to adapt to a world that's going to be changing at an extraordinary pace. Um, and uh, I think it is missing a huge part of what universities do if we reduce... Uh, what we do to simply providing um, uh, engineers for Rolls-Royce, much as I hope we provide many engineers for Rolls-Royce um, and, and other companies. There's a lot more to education and uh, to the role of universities um, than simply... We, universities serve as, as guardians of our culture. They're, they're foundations 
uh, of, our, of our democracy, as well as engines of social mobility and drivers of the economy. Um, but above all, we're um, generators of new ideas, and we mustn't forget those other less um, quantifiable but critical roles of the university. Uh, well, yes, of, of, of course, um, providing, um, providing graduates out of university for business is, is just one of the um, uh, just one of the functions, if you like, of uh, universities. I think it's a very important function, uh, but I do obviously agree that um, giving people the opportunity to, to learn to think and um, to, is, is another important part of preparing young people for a, a life in society. And so uh, I wouldn't contend that it's all about um, business extracting the, the product of, of university, but it's a very important function. Would you, um, what do you think that the, do you think that the universities are not concentrating enough on, because in certain areas you have to have you have to have practical knowledge, don't you? I mean, I think that I agree with you completely. You go to learn how to think, and if you learn, if you can learn how to think, you can adapt here, there, and everywhere. Sometimes, not always, we see people fall into holes all over the place. But there's areas where that lack of engineering is due to an, a way our society thinks about universities. It seems to me, uh, and I don't know how many people study chemistry, for instance. But these are pr- things which have almost immediate practical use. Uh, I don't know whether. Uh, whether they're being slightly disbarred. Is that wrong? Oh, I don't think they're being disbarred at all. Are um, they being encouraged as much as other things? I, I, absolutely. I mean, it's, I worry about the other end of the spectrum precisely because of all the government and business pressure to ensure that we do have trained uh, enough trained uh, people. To uh, we, I worry that we neglect the humanities too much. I mean, if you look at the world around us and the uh, difficulties we face both nationally and globally, I mean, one of the critical things we're missing or seems to be evaporating is, is the capacity for empathy. And how, how does one go about teaching empathy? And the humanities are surely the best way. Surely it's only by inhabiting the world of another, inhabiting a book, inhabiting literature, that you can um, try to inculcate empathy and others. So in our quest to drive the economy, which I, I'm not belittling at all, uh, but I, 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 I just worry that we're neglecting the... the uh, Subjects like the humanities. I mean, I wasn't I... talking about it to drive an economy, I, although that's part of it. I was thinking mm-hmm. that the the idea of, of, of the things that we used to be very good at and great at, like engineering, these have sort of are not don't they don't feel if I'm wrong. Just let's get over this on a parity uh, with other subjects at universities that you don't you don't go to university to do that. You go into practical part of life to do that. Can I can uh, I can I say something? Yeah, because yes. I'm I've said. Completely agree with the vice chancellor. I don't. I don't think this this conforms um, with reality. I mean, our college, Waldham College, is inundated with brilliant young people coming to study chemistry, physics, mathematics. Many of them, many of the scientists, young people from comprehensive schools. For some reason, particularly in the north of England, but we don't have any shortage of uh, brilliant young people who want to come to our college to study these hard sciences. And I'm I'm sure that's true of other colleges as well. I think that insofar as funding is concerned, it's certainly the humanities which are under pressure, particularly for people who want to conduct research in these subjects. It's very, very difficult, for example, to get funding to do a, a defil in, 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 a, in history or in, in English or in modern languages. Um, there's very little money around for that. What do you look for when you're looking for uh, recruits? Do you look for the specific uh, areas in which your company operates, or do you look for very good recruits? 
well, a little bit of both, but um, you know, in in numerical terms, then um, of the three hundred or so graduates that we hire uh, in a year, then um, by far the majority will be. Um, trained with more immediate skills, so there'll be physics, maths, uh, engineering uh, type skills. But I did comment that, you know, business has is full of really difficult problems, and uh, you know, that means that we require graduates who, who, who have been trained in, uh, in the non-sciences, because, you know, the critical thinking that you get if you, uh, if you do a history degree, for instance, or a, a degree in law... Um, you know, is actually very applicable in uh, in business, and just because we happen to be an engineering business doesn't mean that we we don't have all the the, the normal sort of uh, commercial um, issues that uh, that every other business has. I mean, I agree with you about humanities, but I'm trying to play devil's advocate a bit here to get it going. There's one of the things that's coming our way when you read, um, um, well, you read, hang on, you read, is the wiping out of a great number of jobs, which let's call them middle class jobs, let's call them accountants, dentists, and all that. Is there, does that possibility play any part in the way that you're, you hope the university to be reconsidering its objectives? Um, I suppose if I were to be brutally honest, I'd have to say probably not, although it probably should. I mean, our, our Oxford Martin School, for example, which is working to um, try to understand what it... What the, the future. They have just uh, conducted a study in which they've argued that 43% of current jobs, of jobs currently in the economy, 43% are fully automatable within a decade. Doesn't mean they will be automated within a decade, but automatable. Um, so technology is, of course, going to, I think, require that we think very differently about work and how much of our time we devote to work and what kind of work. I think technology is going to drive change at an extraordinary pace, and I don't think any of us are quite prepared for that. Can I get the audience now? Could you ask a question either generally or specifically to one of the speakers? And